Welcome to Inside the Apple Studio, a podcast that talks with architects to learn how they use Apple products in the practice of architecture, with your host, Neil Pan. This episode is sponsored by Entree Architect. Learn more about Entree Architect at entrearchitect.com. I'm excited to have on the show an architect who started a leading residential architecture firm, founded an online education resource that has inspired thousands of architects to build better businesses. He's a successful podcaster, entrepreneur, and recently launched a new venture that continues his mission to teach sole proprietors, small firm architects, and students the importance of business success in the profession of architecture. I'm honored to welcome architect Mark R. LePage to the show. Hey, Neil. I'm happy to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Absolutely, Mark. I'm really thrilled to have you on. And Mark, I want to start by having you take us back to what inspired you to become an architect. Yeah, I would love to tell that story. Um, My wife and I, well, actually, no, I always start the story with my wife and I, but it actually goes way back further than that. What, What inspired me to become an architect was my creative side. You know, I, I was very creative as a kid and I would constantly draw. I would always have a piece of paper and a pencil and, and really black and white drawings, just constantly drawing. And I was a big, big dreamer and I still am a big dreamer and I would draw my dreams, right? In order to make them reality. And so the things that I look into the future and I wanted to, you know, someday achieve, I would draw them. And I would make make them real. So as a kid, I would draw cars. My dad was a, a an auto mechanic, and he was a Corvette collector. And so I grew up in this world of cars and hot rods and fast cars. And um, and so I was a kid that loved fast cars and big trucks and you know fast motors and all that stuff. And so I would draw that. I would draw Corvettes and I would draw Camaros and I would draw big four wheel drive monster trucks and. And the more I drew it, the better I got at it. And, you know, those things started becoming real on the paper. And uh, as I got older, I started dreaming about what my life would look like and what, you know, my house would look like. And and so I started drawing houses and those houses would start looking a little bit more real and more, I could see my future. And so I always, as a kid, always imagined that I would be an artist when I grew up, right? When somebody asked me, what do you want to be? I would say, I, I want to be an artist. And my mom would say, well, you know, artists don't make a lot of money because, you know, she, <laughs> she thought, and this was obviously way before the internet, and, you know, she would think artists were painters, right, or drawing, you know, people who did drawings, or she didn't really look at artists beyond artists, right? And so and so she would say, well, if you could be an artist, you can be anything you want to be, right? My mom was always encouraging, and she would, all three of us, I have two brothers, always encouraged us to follow our dreams. To this day, dreams, that's probably why I'm a huge dreamer, because she's a big dreamer too. And uh, she would encourage us to to sort of look to our future and dream those big dreams. And when I realized that I also wanted to make a lot of money, <laughs> I, I wanted to be rich. <laughs> that's right? a good goal. As a kid, you know, like, I want to be rich, right? I want to, I want to, and that, that, as I got older, that, that goal changed a lot, you know, because the money was less important as you get older, other things, other priorities become important. But at that time I was 10 and I discovered, oh, uh, artists don't make any money. 
architects must make a lot of money, right? Architects are artists that that draw buildings, right? That's what I thought in my 10-year-old mind. And sure. so I'm going to be an architect. I declared wow. it when I, was, when I was 10 and never looked beyond that. I decided at 10 that I would be an architect and everything in my life was then built to to achieve that goal, including the assessment tests that you take when you're in high school to see what you could that you know, your your strengths to see what you would do good in you know as a as a career what would be your strength as a career i i manipulated those tests to make sure that it really? that the result was architect <laughs> and so even that wow. it, you know they, those tests came back architect you'd be a perfect architect because i knew the answers <laughs> to answer in those questions to make sure that architect would come out the answer and so I never looked beyond that, which is good and bad, right? You, it's good to have a dream when you're 10 and focus on that and know what you want, right? It makes life much easier knowing what you want. Sure. But also you never look beyond the, the blinders, right? Or if all I see right. is architect, right? Then all you do is become architect. Maybe there was other things that I could have become that, you know, maybe I was, you know, put here for some other reason. Uh, I don't believe that. I believe I was put on here to do exactly what I'm doing today, um, which we'll get into, I'm sure. You know, that was what inspired me. My mom inspired me to be creative, and um, money inspired me to choose architecture. <laughs> surprise, <laughs> surprise. <laughs> and so nobody told you that architects really don't make any money, No, I right? never knew any architects. <laughs> I didn't know any architects, and so I didn't really meet an architect until, you know, um, in high school, I started looking around for internships, and I would go knock on doors and meet architects. And uh, and no, no one ever told me until I got into architecture school. <laughs> that architect, then the then the professors in architecture school were really clear on that. If you don't want right, to do this right. as a passion, then you should get out and go do something else. Which infuriates me today because it's not true. Uh, I think that architects can make money and could make a lot of money if that's the the goal. But uh, many of us choose not to. Sure. So you had a goal. You were going to be an architect. You were going through high school, manipulating your tests. <laughs> yeah. How did you choose a, an architectural school that you wanted to go to? And, and which school did you attend? Yeah, I attended Roger Williams University in Rhode Island. At the time, it was Roger Williams College. It actually shifted from college to university while I was there. My fifth year, it switched over. They, they built and established a law school, and it became a university. Um, it's in Bristol, Rhode Island, about halfway between Providence and Newport, right on the Narragansett Bay. Nice. It was a brand new architecture building. I visited, I graduated high school in 1988. The architecture building was built in 1987. And uh, Roger Williams was the first school I um, toured, you know, just coincidentally. You know, I just looked at all the schools that we potentially could go to. I wanted to sort of focus on the East Coast, so I went north up to you know Massachusetts and all through New York and south to Maryland and all the different Virginia, all the different schools all along the East, East Coast. But the first one I visited just coincidentally was Roger Williams, and I met the staff there who was also young and enthusiastic uh, and excited to be a newly accredited architecture program. The program had been around for about a decade, I think. Uh, but it was it was newly accredited with the new building. It was the new building. It was the last piece they needed to become accredited. And so everything was fresh and new. Like the building even smelled new, right? You could smell the carpet in the building. Wow, and the, nice. And, and the professors were excited to be there. And so 
Yeah. I was excited. And the campus is beautiful. It's right on the Narragansett Bay. And so, you know, it's a beautiful campus. And it's, you know, a half hour to Providence and a half hour to Newport, Rhode Island. And it was a great place to be. And so everything I visited after that, which were mostly established, you know, decades, year old schools, you know, RPI, uh, where else did I tour? I I went up to Boston somewhere. I don't remember. Uh, Syracuse. I went down to University of Maryland, Virginia. You know, they're all yeah. hundred, two hundred year old schools, and right. and uh, and which is great. You know, and those programs were great. But I I compared everything to that shiny new school with those enthusiastic teachers. And so uh, when it came down to choosing, I applied to four or five schools, got into all of them except Virginia, and only because Virginia really was the last one I applied to and didn't really put the effort into the assignments required to get in. I had already decided that I was going to Roger Williams when I applied to Virginia. (laughs) Nice. And so, uh, so that's where I went. Everybody, you know, everything was being compared to that new building and those enthusiastic professors. And, and I loved it. It was a great, it was a great, and today it's still a great school. It's, it's sort of a very well-rounded school. It teaches, a lot about um, both sort of the technical side and the creative side, and so you become you you come out as a very well-rounded architect coming out of Roger Williams. Nice. So, obviously, the school had a major impact on you when you first visited. Was there any? You mentioned a lot of excited professors. Was there any one particular professor that kind of has had an impact on you that you still think about today? He's no longer with us. I would say Grattan Gill is who I was probably most impacted in. He was very enthusiastic. All the professors, and I mean, it was really a, a great crew of, of uh, Rico Malazzi was there. I don't know if he's still there. It was, it was a long time ago, too, so I don't remember <laughs> all, all of the professors there. Sure. They were very passionate about what they did. It was It was a great school to go to. Awesome. So... After that experience, where or during that time, are you, you obviously started out, I'm going to be an architect. You go to college, you pick a shiny new school. Where did you think your career was going to head at that time? You know, you're in school or mm-hmm. maybe just after school. Did you, where did you think you were going to go? What did you think you were going to do? Well, much like deciding to become an architect, I also decided that I was going to own my own firm. And so that was also oh. an, an established decision, right? It was, it was never, I was an entrepreneur from, from birth. You know, my dad was an entrepreneur as a mechanic. He owned his own shop and his own repair shop. And, okay. and I didn't know it at the time. So I didn't really look at him as an entrepreneur, but as an adult looking back, clearly an entrepreneur ran his own business, did his own marketing. Right. He and he and my mom. Um, and so it, it's in my blood and I never, really wanted to do anything other than have my own business. I like controlling my own destiny. I like being able to do things my way. And so that was always part of the plan. Coming out of architecture school, I got a job with uh, Barry Postganser, who is a small firm in Ridgewood, New Jersey, and learned a lot. He did some development, and he was a, a very good business person. He sort of took me under my wing, under his wing and taught me architecture. And to this day, he takes full credit for my entire life because he also introduced <laughs> me He introduced me to Anne-Marie, my wife, because okay. soon after he hired me, he hired Anne-Marie and told Anne-Marie that there was this lonely guy in the back who needed a boyfriend, a girlfriend. <laughs> and, so, and so he set us up right from the beginning. 
And to his surprise, we never told anybody in the firm that we were dating and much less that when I left, I told them that we were engaged to get married. We kept it all a secret. Wow. Never, never told anybody in the firm that we were even dating. And so uh, it was a big surprise when we left. So today he takes full credit for my family, my kids, my business, everything. <laughs> uh, it's all owed to Barry. So I appreciate that. And then after Barry, I, I left. And the intent was, as, an, as a young intern, I wanted experience, right? Knowing that I wanted to start, start my own firm, mm-hmm. I wanted experience. So I, Barry's firm was a small residential firm, did some commercial work, did some development work. So really good, well-rounded experience. The next place I went was, uh, at the time, it was called URS Consultants. Today, it's uh, UR, URS Corp, uh, part of Grenier. Grenier merged with them. Today, one of the largest engineering slash architecture firms in the world. Okay. Um, and so I went to the complete opposite end of the profession and went to a huge firm and worked for them for about a year and experienced, knowing that I didn't want to work for a large firm, but wanted to experience that. And so I did that. And then when we got married... Anne Marie and I got married. We moved to Westchester, New York, to to Pleasantville. Actually, is the town that we moved to, and I got a uh, a job with um, uh, Kyer Garman and Davidson, uh, Dave, Russ Davidson, who was the former past president, actually the past president of AIA National, was one of the mm-hmm. partners at that firm. I became Dick Kyer's right hand man. Basically, became his drawing board, and worked very closely with all three partners, uh, specifically Dick Kyer. And um, really learned a lot from him. He taught me architecture, taught me mostly about how to interact with people. He was very good with clients and very good with contractors um, and taught me a lot. And uh, and working so closely with him, he basically designed things and I did everything else for him. Did all the construction drawings, did a lot of the construction administration, learned a lot about architecture there. And I was on track to become a partner and uh, I always knew that I wanted to be my own boss and chose to leave to start Five Cat, my architecture firm. And so did that after about four or five years with them and then moved on and, uh, and started the architecture firm with Anne-Marie. So that's, that's really fascinating. So you were on a track to be an owner, to be maybe not your own person right? calling every shot. Yeah. But what made you decide to move away from that and go start five cat yeah i i mean and you could see it in entree architect and the things that i'm doing in entree architect i saw the profession differently you know i saw the profession as a place that needed to look at a firm as a business and you know kg and d at the time was much like all the other firms and i know that's a general statement but many of the other firms that the business side and the profitability of the business, and I didn't know, you know, it was a pretty closed group in terms of the business side, which is also was pretty traditional back then, that sure. they didn't really show the books, you know, didn't really show how the business worked, which I think needs to change because that's how architects learn to build, build better businesses is to, is to have the, in the, as the intern, learning the business side as well, right? So they can sure. become better employees or they can go off and, become successful architects, which strengthens the profession. And so to answer your question, I always knew that I wanted my own firm. I wanted the control. I wanted to do it my way, and I wanted to do it differently. I did try to have some influence, but I was 28, 29 years old. 
you know, I was a kid. Yeah. And uh, and they didn't really want to hear my my suggestions, right? I had some ideas on how they can do what they did better. Sure. Uh, I presented those to the to the partners, and they it didn't really wasn't really received. It was heard, right? They listened, mm-hmm. and then they told me good to go back to the drafting board. They didn't, they, didn't, they weren't rude about it, but they basically said sure. go back to the drafting board and and go do your thing. We got this under control, and they're a successful firm, so they're doing something right. Sure. But I wanted to do things my way, right? And so I wanted yeah. to go and start my own firm, and I wanted to have my own control and and the freedom that comes with that, right? I wanted. I, Anne-Marie and I, from the very beginning, wanted to have our own firm so we could have our own family and raise our kids and have that integrated life, which I also would not have if I became a partner in a, in a medium-sized firm with, you know, 15, 20 people. Right. I wouldn't have the, the, the flexibility to do what I want with my kids and go to every single sporting event and every single uh, class play and every single back to school night. I never missed any of them. It was all part of my life because right. it was intentional to live a life that way. And and so we made sacrifices in the business, right, in order to do that. But I had the freedom to do that. I had the freedom to build the business that supported the lifestyle and the family that I wanted to have. And so sure. I left and started my own firm. So you've got your own firm. You're doing that. And then the internet comes along, it's a little further along now, and you've got all these ideas, and you start blogging. That's right. Take me through the idea of what your goal was when you started blogging, yeah. and how that eventually became Entree Architect. Yeah. When we launched our firm, in 1999 we launched, immediately we built a website. And in 1998, 1999, which is 1998 was when we started thinking about it and started building the website, no architects had websites. I remember in the late 90s, early 2000s, I would go to AIA chapter meetings and encourage architects to build to, to get a website. And they'd be like, oh, we don't need websites. What do we need websites for? <laughs> That's just, you know, what do we need that for? Right. And right. so so I had a website, right? We built our website. Uh, in 1998, launched in 1999. And so when people searched for architects in Westchester County, New York, I was the one that came up, right? And so uh, we launched our firm using the internet, leveraged the internet. Okay. And I'm a tech guy. I like technology. I like, I love the internet and what it can do. And I've loved it from the very beginning. I was a charter member of AOL and, you know, spent time on AOL and I, you know, it, in, from the very early 90s, I was online, right? Yeah. And so it was just part of me, and it was just just made sense to, to build the website and, and build a business that way. Google didn't even exist. It was all other search engine, <laughs> Alta right. Vista. Alta and, Vista, yes. Yeah, and, and uh, Ask Jeeves and Yahoo, I think, had was soon after that. and Right. So the blog came about because... I started, I learned about blogs and what blogs were, and I followed other blogs. And so I built a blog called Living Well in Westchester for the firm. Okay. And I would write with the audience being my potential clients. And so I would write much like a, you know, sort of like a a home and garden magazine, that sort of vibe. I would write, you know, how-to articles and what I, what, what's going on in the firm and the type of projects that we're doing. And so I would write a blog once a week uh-huh. about what was happening. And 
that became a big marketing tool for us because the the blog attracted when it helped with search results and sure. at the time there were no other architecture blogs in Westchester County and so they found me again right they found the website they found the blog right and they would follow the blog and they would subscribe and they would follow the blog and they would get to know me through my writing and so it was a way for me to sort of build that rapport before I got to the doorbell. So when I got to the doorbell, I'd ring the doorbell and they would invite me in like this old friend because they'd been reading my blog for the past year and a half or whatever. Right. And so it became a really powerful marketing tool. And today, blogs still work that way if you if you focus on them. They're certainly not as anywhere near as powerful as they were in the 90s and early 2000s, but they still work. And so that was the first blog. And then because I am the business side of the, of the firm. I joke often, and everybody who follows me has heard me say this a thousand times. I always joke that Anne-Marie and I make the perfect architect when we come together because she loves <laughs> architecture. She loves design. She loves everything that the traditional architect would love to do, and she hates business. Okay. And I love the business side. I love the people connections. I love working with contractors, and I love the game of business, the financial management stuff of it, and the marketing and the sales and all of that, I, I enjoy it. Okay. And so together we work really well, right? I would get the work, she would design it, I would create the drawings, I would get it built. Then we would just keep doing that over and over and over again. And we built a really successful architecture firm in Westchester doing high-end small projects, we call them. Basically additions and alterations for really high-end homes. Okay. And because I was the business side, I started a second blog called Entrepreneur Architect. And I wrote it, it was for me. It was just a place where I could post my ideas and put links to things I found interesting. And it because it was about business and architecture, in 2007, I started that blog. That also found an audience pretty quickly because there were no other, there was very little information about business in the profession of architecture at all. The AIA certainly wasn't presenting anything about business back then. Sure. Uh, there, were, there were very few other platforms talking about architecture and uh, business and architecture. And so that blog found an audience very quickly. And over the years, that audience became a community in the comments. And so I would write something, they would post a comment, I would respond to the comment, it was before social media. Yeah. And the, the community, which eventually evolved into the Entree Architect community, started in that blog in 2007. And that community was the inspiration for everything else that we've done from that point forward. Because as that community strengthened and that blog grew, that community encouraged me to turn it into something bigger, something different, something more powerful, more influential for the profession. And so after lots of procrastination in 2012, I relaunched it as Entree Architect. Wow. Fascinating. I mean, seeing and hearing everything you've done leads me to the point of this is what you were meant to do. And yeah. I mean, it's pretty much, that's the culmination of that is, is really getting to that point. So you've done it, but now I'm curious, how has your career evolved since you've established Entree Architect in 2012, I guess, uh, the, with the 12-12-12 project, right? Correct. Yeah. Right. And in the end, at the end of 2012, I recognized that the, the the date, December 12th, 2012, was coming. I thought that was interesting. And uh, the community had been encouraging me for years to turn it into something more. I would promise for years that I would turn it into something more. 
I would plan to turn it into something more, and then I would procrastinate about turning it into something more, right? Because I was afraid, right? It, it, sure. It's a, it's a big leap to sort of relaunch something, and it was intentionally from the beginning launched as a platform for a small firm, for the profession. It wasn't for me, it was for the profession. Yeah. With the intention of influencing the profession. From day one, that's what it was. And I decided that I was going to launch the podcast that same day. And so I used that date, 12 12 12. Uh, I posted it on the blog. The blog art, the blog post is still there. If you search 12 12 12 project and my name, you'll find it. And it was an announcement saying that I'm going to do something that would change my life and it would have a, a positive impact on the world. That was, the, that was what I announced that I, on 12 12 12, I'm working on a project that is going to change my life and have impact, positive impact on the world. And I encouraged others to do the same thing. So other people right. had 12, 12, 12 projects as well. And so on December 12th, 2012, at 12, 12 p.m., oh my. <laughs> I pushed the button and I launched EntreeArchitect.com as a platform and published the first episode of Entree Architect podcast. Same day, same time. Uh, and for the first year, I think it was the first, first year I did it monthly, and I think I published on 12, 12 every month for that year. Right. And then the second year I decided to go weekly and it's been weekly ever since. We've downloaded way more than 2 million episodes since we launched in 2012. And it's been a huge success. And it's really been, the podcast has really been the driving force that sort of has helped Entree Architect platform grow because people are looking for that information, finding the podcast and becoming part of the community. And then there's lots of ways for people to become part of the community. There's free ways and there's paid memberships and all kinds of things. How has that grown over the last eight years and how has that changed? Are you still doing five cat? Are you still doing architecture? <laughs> that, that's a traditional a very, architecture. That is a very common question. I technically am still practicing. We still have an architecture firm. When I recently moved from New York, Westchester County, where we were to the Charlotte, North Carolina region. And so now we're in, in North Carolina and we closed the firm in New York. We have a couple of little projects up there still, but we basically brought that, that firm down. We had planned to move, so we brought the firm down to pretty much zero with the intent of closing New York, starting something new in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. What we're planning in New York, in North Carolina, is development. We're going to do residential development. We're not going to do client work here. And so okay. now with the economy and COVID, we've sort of delayed that for now on uh, sure. starting that, but that's the intent of what we're going to do here uh, architecturally is that we're going, we already own the property that we're going to develop. It's just a matter of uh, timing it, getting it funded. And then Anne-Marie and I will work the way we've always worked. I will do all the, the, the outside work and she'll design some amazing buildings and I'll get them built and sell them. And we'll do that over and over and over again and have a lot of fun doing it. Awesome. You're doing that. You're still doing architecture. You've got entree. Tell me about Gabble. Gable. <laughs> it's okay. Everybody everybody calls it Gable. It's Gable. The A has a little line over it, so it's a long A. The idea is that it's it's all one big roof, right? That's how you'll remember Gable. Okay. And so Gable Media, that's an interesting story. Uh, Gable Media is part of Gable Technologies. And Gable Technologies is a new company that I started when I moved to North Carolina. It was a plan that I had, I had planned to do it later. Gable Technologies was one of those big ideas that someday I'm going to get to it. And God has his way of forcing me to do the things that he wants me to do. <laughs> and when I got to North Carolina, 
North Carolina would not let me register the don- uh, the the entity Entree Architect LLC. In New York, okay. I shortened it to Entree Arch LLC in New York. They accepted that. They wouldn't let me use the word architect in New York either, okay. even though I'm a licensed architect. I wasn't practicing architect with Entree Architect. I see. It was not, a, it was not a, an architecture firm, so I wasn't allowed to use the word architect in New York, but they allowed me to use Entree Arch. Okay. And so when I moved to North Carolina, I said, okay, I'm just going to close the LLC in New York, start an, an Entree Arch LLC here in North Carolina, and we'll be, you know, just keep going. Right. And when I registered, tried applied to register for Entree Arch LLC in North Carolina, they said nope. <laughs> oh, and they they clearly did a a search. Yeah, found out that Entree Arch is this platform. I see, and they said no. And so I said, okay, well, I guess that's time. It's time to launch on uh, Gable Media, uh, Gable Technologies. Okay, and, and the plan for Gable Technologies is to is a company that's going to develop uh, software and online resources for architects. So we're going to we're going to develop all the stuff that we as an architectural community are constantly looking for uh, in order to run our businesses, right? And so okay. we we're looking for these tools. None of them are built for architects. They're all built for other businesses. So Gable Technologies is intended to develop that software someday. Right now, I have too many other things going on to start a tech, you know, a software company. But that's the plan. Right. And it happened now because I moved to North Carolina. So I established Gable Technologies in North Carolina. Entree Architect is now owned by Gable Technologies. At the same time, or around the same time, one of the workshops, we do workshops at Entree Architect, multi-week workshops. And I team up with Steve Wintner for the Profit Workshop. Okay. We also developed a branding and marketing workshop. I teamed up with Jeff Eccles to develop the Build Your Brand workshop, and that's a four-week workshop. And as we developed the Build Your Brand workshop, we said this should be something more than just this workshop. And if you've ever heard Jeff Eccles' voice, you're like, he has got to be on the on the radio. He's got to be <laughs> on a podcast. He has yeah. a perfect voice for it. And so we talked about it, and we said, okay, well, someday let's do something. Let's do a podcast or something more than just uh, this workshop. So that was a plan. We're going, we're going to do that. Didn't set any deadlines and, and didn't really pursue it. But then the idea for Gable Technologies was is still floating around, and I met with my friend Demetrius Lynch, who is the creator of Spaces Podcast, which is another great podcast that everybody should subscribe to. And I met with him because we had become friends over the years, just becoming you know all, both architects and much like sure. you and I have become friends because of we're architects and we're both podcasters and we like right. the same stuff. And so Demetrius is similar to that. And so I met Demetrius in, in Las Vegas at the convention and had breakfast with him and said, you know, we just started comparing notes and, and we have similar ideas, right? He wants to create something that's going to impact the world through architecture. I am creating something and can want to continue creating something. So we started brainstorming and saying, well, what if this, what if that, you know, what if this? And so we were both excited about it. And so we left there saying, why don't we team up doing something? And so when I got back, I thought, well, why don't we start the build your brand podcast? We'll get Jeff Eccles to come. I'll team him up with Demetrius to come and become my creative director and Demetrius and Jeff Eccles can get together and create Build Your Brand podcast, and it'll become a second Entree Architect podcast. And that's what it is. It's Entree awesome. Architect Build yeah. Your Brand podcast with Jeff Eccles, totally created 
without my input at all other than, you know, some basic comments. Right. But it was created by Jeff. The content was created by Jeff. It was edited and produced and sound designed and all of that stuff by Demetrius. I'm so proud of it. They did a, such a good good job with it. And that is a, a season of 12 episodes. Comes out every two weeks on Tuesdays. And it, it teaches you how to build a successful brand by telling the story of the Southwest Airlines brand. Interesting. So he tells the entire story, yeah. the history of how it started, and then the, the evolution of the Southwest Airlines brand. He pulls a lesson from what they've done and applies it to how architects can apply it to their firms. Right. And the idea is that we'll do another season, a second season with a different company and do the same thing. Tell the story of another successful brand and how architects can learn from that. Wow. So proud of it. And super highly well-produced. Right. Really really well done. And so once that was launched, I'm like, Demetrius, we need to do more than this. Right? We need to turn this into more than just two Entree Architect podcasts. Let's build a network. Let's let's create a, a, a division of Gable Technologies that invite other architects to come because there's leaders all over the world who have lots of knowledge um, who, who are already potentially sharing it through platforms sure. or on social media and are considering doing a podcast. But you and I both know how much effort and work it takes to, sure. to launch, to create and develop and publish and promote and monetize a podcast, right? It right. takes a lot of work. And so the intent of Gable Media is to be able to do all of that other stuff for architects and engineers and contractors, the whole AEC industry. We are building a multimedia network that does podcasts, video series, and print publishing eventually for the AEC industry. So we right now we have four podcasts on the network. We're in development on two more that are currently in, in development uh, and we're talking with several other people who who are interested in in creating podcasts. So if you're interested, go over to Gable <laughs> GableMedia dot com. Gable is spelled with no e. G a b l Media dot com, and, awesome. uh, and go see what we're doing over there. Wow, Mark, you've had an amazing architectural journey. You've enriched the lives of so many other people, and I'm sure everyone listening to this, you know, is just going to be inspired by all the things that you can do in architecture, all the different possibilities. I mean, this, this conversation just leads, I mean, from somebody that went from drawing cars and then <laughs> drawing houses to now the leader of a technology media company, really, it, it's, it's an incredible journey. So uh, with that, we're going to take a short break. And after, we'll explore your exposure to the Mac and learn more about your Apple journey right after this. This episode of Inside the Apple Studio is sponsored by Entree Architect. As a small firm architect, do you sometimes feel like something is missing? You have the projects, you have the team, you have the software and equipment, but every month is a struggle. The firm that you may have thought was everything you dreamed has turned out to be a burden, a stressful burden, and you don't know why. Could it be that when you built your firm, you focused on being a great architect and forgot that on the day you decided to launch your firm, you also became an entrepreneur. You became a small business owner. The secret to success as a small firm architect is to focus on the fundamentals and to build a better business. A strong, healthy business will allow you to be the architect that you want to be. 
And our friends at Entree Architect can help. Entree Architect Academy is a membership program dedicated to small firm entrepreneur architects just like you. With business resources, training, and a community of like-minded professionals all focused on building better businesses. If you want to learn more, visit entrearchitect.com slash join. That's E-N-T-R-E architect.com slash join. Welcome back. Mark, you've taken us through your architecture journey. Now let's discuss how you started using a Mac and eventually other Apple products in your architectural practice. Now you didn't start off as a Mac user. What were you using before that? Nope. My first computer was Gateway, 1992. Actually, my first computer was, was, I think, I don't know, one of those other home computers that you you know you get when you were a kid in the 80s. Right. Commodore, maybe? Commodore, maybe. Yeah, yep. Big 20 or something. Yeah, I think it was a Commodore. But the first computer I bought was in 1992, Gateway. And, yeah, it was... It was a great computer at the time. You know, I signed up for AOL as soon as the discs showed up in the mailbox. (laughs) Um, And so I was a user of AOL very early. And then eventually moved to Dell. When I started my firm, they were all Dells. So I had had Dell PCs forever and, you know, had Windows all throughout that. And then uh, probably the same story that many of your guests are going to, to have in their transition from one side to the other, um, I got tired of the crashes. I got tired of the of the incompatibilities and the and the meltdowns that that Microsoft just sort of was part of using Windows computers, right? And it was just acceptable. It was just the way it is. Oh, it locked up again. Restart, reboot. Yeah. Or they would have an automatic update. Even if you told it to not automatically update, it would automatically <laughs> update right when you're ready to do some important project. And you'd have to wait for hours because back then the time to update would take hours. And, and sure. you know, a lot of it was disks that you'd have to update with or when the Internet was part of it, then the, the Internet would kick in and it would it would take hours to update right. to a simple you know software update. And so I just got tired of that. And what had happened, my, my first transition to Mac was uh, a Mac mini server. Interesting. My, I had a giant Dell server uh-huh. with multi-disks in it that was running my firm. I had, I had six employees at the time, five employees, six including me. And so we had six workstations. And I had this big, giant Dell, you know, looked like a coffee table sitting in my, right. in my, on my rack. I had a computer closet with the with the rack and the hubs and all of everything right and the server crashed or was about to crash was was starting to crash right you can yeah. you can see that it was failing and i replaced that once throughout the early years and then um decided to try a mac mini server did some research and went and bought a mac mini server the mac mini server was an inch and a half thick <laughs> 10 by 10 right? right i took it i i brought it into the closet i put it on top of the dell <laughs> the dell server so I, I made it a table and i yeah. ran six dells the workstations were all still pc yeah and just ran it through the the server so it became my file server okay and was super reliable right i still had windows on the workstation side it was just a file server and never crashed ever 
and never had a problem with it. You know, the the integration, trying to get the the Mac Mini server to work nice with the PCs, that became, you know, complicated at times. Right. You know, lots of, you know, having to have the right words and the right dots in the right place. <laughs> right. And I, I do not miss that at all. I bet. That was so frustrating trying to get those things to work. And it would take up so much time. You'd want to be an architect and you'd want to do your projects and you'd spend days tinkering with wires and, and computers. It was just so frustrating. Right. And so with that that reliability, I just gradually started transitioning everything over to Mac. So as a PC would would die, we would just replace it with a Mac computer. Okay. And uh, and just slowly moved moved over. So we would have you know we'd start moving. I originally bought a, an iMac for me, and then just slowly transitioned everybody over to to Macs. And now it's all Mac. I've, I've been a hundred percent Mac for years. Um, I run a, a a originally I launched Entree Architect on the iMac. I've since then this is my second MacBook. I had a fifteen inch MacBook. Now I have. It's still a 15-inch MacBook. So I got in 2019, got a 15-inch MacBook loaded. The one I have now is a loaded MacBook. Top of the line, has everything. And I run right now what you're looking at. You're looking at me, Neil. The people on the podcast can't see me. But (laughs) I have my Mac over to my left, my MacBook over to my left with the monitor open. So I have my calendar over there. Sure. Right in front of me, I have an LG monitor that I'm running off of it. I have two other monitors flanking that main monitor so i have three monitors that i work with plus the macbook to my left all running off the macbook and then i have two thanks to you i have two (laughs) external drives my books yeah i have two my book external drives that are backups and external archives and i have um and then i have software backups as well sure i have i have um, a bunch of things that you recommended that i that I do, and I have all that stuff cloning and backing up automatically. Right. So I'm curious, as you were in the process of this transition, I know a lot of a lot of people in the profession, or even you know, firm owners, are concerned about even having a mixed environment. What what were you using to create your architecture side? I mean, the, doing the drawings. What were you using at the time that you could use on both that assisted in that transition? Yeah, it was. I was using. Um, uh, AutoCAD. I was using okay. AutoCAD LT. I've always used AutoCAD LT. I still, to this day, and mostly because my firm has shrunk to to zero. <laughs> right. I'm not. I I never transitioned to BIM. Okay. And so we ran AutoCAD LT forever, and built the firm on that. And all the CDs were all done on AutoCAD LT, which okay, which ran on both sides. And so they had a right. Mac version of AutoCAD, and they had a um a PC version of AutoCAD, and so. They played well together. They, they both made DWG files. Okay. All right. So, I mean, really having that ability to run the same program basically on two platforms allowed yep. that to happen. So it's it's real important for, you know, software developers if they're looking at supporting both platforms to do so because it allows somebody like yourself to to do what you've done. So it's really important. If I had transitioned to BIM, I would have a problem, right? Yeah. I would have to run parallels on my Macs to even run Revit. Right. I never did that. I never wanted to do that. Right. But I'm sure that works for some firms. I'm curious, Mark, what's been your experience of using a Mac? 
<laughs> you know, explain what it's like to use a Mac. <laughs> I love my Macs. I, you know, I love the reliability after I've never looked back, right? I've never had a problem with my Macs ever. You know, eventually they wear out and you have to replace them and they sort of tell you that, you know, it's time to, you know, they would start locking up on you or something. Sure. But I've had a little bit of issues with the newest update. And I've discovered that it's my flanking remote uh, monitors that are the problem. It's it, I see. it was locking things up. That was a little frustrating. Uh, but if I put those to sleep, everything else stays stays on and, and works out well. And so I just love the reliability of it. And I, you know, I have. It's funny because Anne Marie, my wife and partner, is she's not a computer person at all. Yeah. And it's funny because she has a little 13 inch MacBook. And she has a little Mac, um, an iPad mini, and she has an iPhone, you know, the latest iPhone. And so, yeah. Oh, oh, and she has them all like stacked up on top of one another. And so she can do whatever she wants to do whenever she wants to do it. Right. Yeah. And that's the same thing. That's why I have a MacBook instead of an iMac, because I can unplug it and go. Right. And right. I can do what I'm doing here anywhere. And so uh, I just, I love it. It just, it, and the other thing, the other the, the secret that only you know <laughs> when i updated my last iphone i went to the other side oh, yes. i i bought a samsung i think it was an s10 and loved it but very quickly realized that all of my integrations all of the the stuff that automatically updates and and integrates and syncs up with everything else all that mac stuff that you don't even realize is important yeah. until you try to shift over to another platform I missed it so much with my, you know, with my messages and my my email, right? That I sent it back and I got an iPhone 10, <laughs> and so uh, I still have my iPhones, and, and so I've uh, I've never yeah. gone to the other side after I had I had I started my first my first uh, smartphone was a uh, a Droid, okay, and then very quickly switched over to iPhones and never looked back. Yeah. I'm curious, a lot of firm owners and a lot of sole practitioners out there that are running their firms. Okay, so you've got your main computer application, your BIM or CAD drawing, and there's there's other BIM applications that'll run on the Mac as well. So you don't have to use Revit, but yep. what other types of applications do you use on your Mac to run your firm for timekeeping or yeah. project management or... Anything else that is involved in running your firm? Yeah. Well, I use Slack for everything. Okay. And so I, I have Slack channels for Entree Architect. I have Slack channels for my architecture firm. I even had a Slack channel for my family when we were doing some projects. We you know, we sort of organized it and, on Slack. Yeah. And so Slack is a big piece of it. I use Fantastical as my calendar. Okay. Which I love. Works really great with syncing up with my iPhone and, and integrates with my Google Calendar, because I'm running Google Calendar, and so it sure. syncs up with Google Calendar really well. What else am I working on on a daily basis? Oh, I love my email. I use Spark for email. Okay, interesting. A lot of automated email work that's really great, and that also syncs really well with my iPhone, a great iPhone app. I use Zoom all day long, every day, for years, way before COVID really? showed up. Yeah, because Entree Architect is all based on connecting with other people and presenting things like that. And so sure. I didn't use it for the architecture firm, but for Entree Architect, I use it a lot. But I was in, before we moved to North Carolina and decided to close the, the firm up in New York, 
we were in the process of transitioning to ArchiCAD, which would run on Macs, which is why I was looking at that. I procrastinated. The reason I procrastinated is because I kept going back and forth be- between ArchiCAD and Revit on Parallels. Sure. And then never made the decision. So when we start doing development, we're going to do the design. So I'm going to eventually have to choose one right. and learn it. And so, because we're going to do all that work ourselves, you know, eventually I'm going to have to make that decision and do one or the other. Then I'll call you and say, how do I do this? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> if anyone's listening to this and considering using a Mac in their practice, what advice would you give them? If you are on a PC and you are considering using a Mac, I would just dive in 100%. I'm, and, and I think anybody who's running a Mac is going to say that same thing. It, they are just intuitive and reliable and do everything that you want them to do. And so other than Autodesk not playing playing nice <laughs> with, with Apple, clearly they, they have abandoned Apple, there's no reason to not go to Mac. Because it does everything that the PCs do more reliably. And I've been back on other computers, other, other PCs. My parents have a, a PC laptop that's running you know, the most recent Windows. And I still, still don't get it. It's just, <laughs> it, just, it just it looks like the same problems that I was having 10 years ago. Yeah. And they're still calling you know, tech support to solve those problems. And I'm like, just switch over. And so I bought them iPhones and iPads. So they're in transition. They're in their late seventies and they are in transition to full Mac. Over okay. There. Wow. Well, Mark, I appreciate you sharing your Apple journey, but before we move on to our final segment, I'd like you to share with the audience one app utility or service that you find most useful. I would say spark. I would say my email spark First of all, it's beautiful. The user interface is, is intuitive and it's beautiful. And it does lots and lots of automated. It'll hold your emails and time them. It'll schedule your emails to go out when you want them to go out. Um, they'll automatically file them in folders. And it just works really, really well. And so I would say Spark for email. Okay, great. Thank you for sharing. I appreciate it. And uh, if you're interested, it's got Mark's uh, seal of, of approval there. So as we close out our time, I'd like to wrap up with our 10 questions. Let's get started with the very first one here. What's your favorite word? Uh, favorite word is love. I said at the end, and I know we're only supposed to do one word, but I just want to say this real quick. My three favorite words are love, learn, share. And if you listen to the podcast, you can learn more. What's your least favorite word? Before we started this, I, I told you that this was, the negatives were harder. So my least favorite word would probably... Ah, let me come back to that one, Neil. Okay. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Connections. Bringing two people together. So those two people individually, when they come together, they are individually more powerful is my favorite thing in the world to do. What turns you off? Uh, secretive. Being secretive. What sound or noise do you love? The creaking spring on the screen door of my parents' river house on the St. Lawrence River. What sound or noise do you hate? Uh, screaming in my house. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite curse word? I do not have a favorite curse word. I actually don't like curse words. 
Okay. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Uh, I would love to customize cars. What profession would you not like to do? Hmm. I don't think I could ever be a doctor. So let's go back to new question number two on my list here. We're going to, before we get to the last one. Yeah. What's your least favorite word? My least favorite word is. Could be a swear word. <laughs> you want me to say it? Me to say it? <laughs> no, no. Actually, no. that's it's okay. That's actually, I could say that. I, I would say fuck might be my least favorite word because people are using it throughout the internet and through our society as if it's an okay word to use. And I don't believe it's an okay word to use. I think it's degrading our society in so many ways. I think that's a great answer. Our last question If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Heaven does exist in my mind and in my world, and he is going to say, good job. Awesome, Mark. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Inside the Apple Studio. Mark R. LePage, thank you. Thank you, Neil. I appreciate you inviting me on your show, and I I appreciate you for doing this. I think this is going to be a fantastic series, uh, and I'm, I'm really happy to be part of it. Thanks. Thank you. I have been your host, Neil Pan. And thank you for listening to this episode of Inside the Apple Studio. I'd like to thank my guest, Mark R. LePage, for joining me, and Entree Architect for sponsoring this episode. Learn more about Entree Architect at entrearchitect.com. And be sure to follow the show by selecting the follow button in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Inside the Apple Studio is a production of Apple for Architects at appleforarchitects.com.